before we start, let's go ahead and um, recap what we learned about last week. So what is, we talked about, what is a woman's highest calling? What is it? Was anyone, does anyone remember from last week? A woman's highest calling is to glorify God. That's right. So we talked about how our highest calling is not as wife or mom or daughter or employee, although those are all beautiful things and areas that we should be faithful. Our highest calling is to glorify God. And we talked about how we can do that by knowing God's word, by loving the word of God, by knowing it, reading it, meditating on it, by prioritizing God's word, by letting it influence all of our lives, every part of us, what we think, what we think about, what we wear, what we talk about, and then finally fulfilling God's word, being faithful where we're planted. So we also talked about last week a history of feminism, how without even knowing it, a lot of us have been influenced by uh, culture, our culture, and we value independence and autonomy more than anything else. We don't primarily ask the question, what does God want for my life? We ask, how can I be equal with the men around us? And so we talked about the history of feminism there. But we also talked about Genesis 1 through 3, how God made man and woman equal in value, but different with roles. And so that's what we're talking about today. The talk title is Confidence and Clarity in Roles. So to do that, we're going to look at Titus 2. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll open up to the book of Titus, it's after First and Second Timothy, before Philemon and Hebrews. And while you're pulling that up, uh, whenever we start a new book of the Bible, it's helpful to know the context of the book. We think of context, we think of who, what, when, where, and why. Who wrote the book? When did they write it? Where were they writing to? Where were they writing from? And that kind of thing. So if anyone has the book of Titus open, who wrote the book of Titus? Paul. How do you know? It says it right there, right. <laughs> and who is he writing to? To Titus, right. So Bible Study 101, this is helpful because the books of the Bible were written by specific men led by the Holy Spirit to specific people. And so it's helpful for us if we know the context of what would the original hearers have heard this as? What were they thinking at the time? So Paul was writing to Titus, who was a church, local church pastor, a church planning pastor on the island of Crete. You think of Mediterranean Sea, it's on the east side. And Crete was similar to Miami in a lot of ways. It was beautiful but difficult. It was a sea trade kind of town. And so there was lots of ideas coming in and out. Beautiful city, but it was known later in the book of Titus, we're gonna see that Paul quotes a poet of the time who says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. They often, even they came up with this phrase to Cretanize, which meant to lie. So if you think of what they would say, they came up with a phrase for Miami, to Miami eyes. You know, you could think, to be sensual or to love material goods or something. But for this time and this people, they lied so much that it was called, to Cretanize meant to lie. It was the birthplace of Zeus and all these mythological things. And so even within the church, false teaching had come in and it had started to affect what people were hearing and believing. So Paul is writing to Titus and he is saying, hold fast to sound doctrine. And so it's within this context that we're going to pick up in Titus 2. You may have read this a thousand times. This may have been your first time reading this book. But this is going to, over the next couple of verses that we're going to read, Paul is going to instruct older women to teach younger women. It's this discipleship aspect. 
And so let's pick up with Titus 2. So it says, but as for you. So again, this is Paul talking to Titus. He's saying, but as for you, teach what is in accordance with sound doctrine. And so even from this start of this chapter, we can learn a couple important things. One, in your handout, you have this, who wrote it? We were doing the context of Titus. Who wrote it? Paul, to whom Titus. Discipleship happens in the local church. That's one of the things that we can learn even from this starting here because Paul, again, he's talking to this local pastor and he's telling him that older women are to disciple younger women. The church is where we're supposed to learn what it looks like to honor God. We're supposed to learn as younger women what it looks to become older women who are reverent, who love God, who love God with all of our lives. And so it's within the church. Within your handout, you're gonna see some personal reflection questions as well. You don't have to answer, answer these out loud, but these are good for you to reflect on. The first question being, are you involved in a local church? Are you joyfully allowing others to speak into your life with humility? So whether this is your home church or another church, be involved there. Do you have older women that you can go to? Are you letting them speak into your life, into your lives? Um, side note, for these personal reflection questions, as well as the ones on the back, the discussion questions, we're probably not gonna have time to go through all of your discussion questions or any of these personal reflection here. But my aim in still including them is I would love it. You take it home, you pray about it, you pray through it. This is basically applying scripture to your life. So go to the Lord and say, how can I grow in these areas? We're gonna use a discussion time to help this, to do discipleship 101, but, but also take it home and, and ask the Lord for that. So going back to Titus, we also can learn, first, it happens and discipleship happens in the local church, but secondly, Paul gives these commands because they're needed. So at the time, we don't know, was discipleship not happening because women didn't know better? Maybe you didn't know better. You didn't know you're supposed to have older women pouring into you. As a younger woman, you're supposed to be looking up to older women. Maybe you didn't know. Or maybe at the time, there was outright rebellion. Like, I do not wanna do that. Don't ask me to do that. Or maybe some kind of anxious self-pity. Like, I just don't have anything to offer the younger gals. I just don't know what I would say. But for whatever reason, Paul is giving this command because it was needed. And we too are supposed to grow from this. So what does it say? It says, at the beginning of your handout or in your Bibles, we're gonna read Titus 2, verses three through five together. Would someone read that? Excellent, okay. So this is what we're gonna be talking about the whole time today. But before we do that, it's early, it's a list. I know the tendency might be to kind of tune out. So we're gonna take two minutes on our own and spend time with the text. In your handout, you see that there's uh, underlined older women, younger women, character and actions right here. I want you with your pens to write down which characteristics are for older women, which ones are for younger women, which are more character traits and which are more actions. Just spend two minutes, you may not have time to finish it, but uh, two minutes with the text yourself so that you know where we're going and I'll, I'll break you up when it's time. All righty. Two minutes is up. <laughs> Let's uh, debrief just for a second. What do you see Paul calling older women to? Anyone can shout him out. What are some of the things he tells older women to do? Be reverent. Mm -hmm. What else? Not slandering. 
teacher of good things. Mm -hmm. Training younger women. Good. And not slaves to much wine. What about younger women? The list is longer here. <laughs> Love their husbands. Mm-hmm. Self-controlled. Pure. Submissive. Kind. Good. And which one of these do you think are more character traits, like describing who you are to become, who you are? Kind. Mm-hmm. Kind, loving, good. Reverent. Some of these might be in both categories, right? We're talking reverent. Will, it's who you are. It's also what you do. So that's okay. What about some actions? We won't go through all of these, but what are some of the actions that, that women are called to do? Working at home. Mm-hmm. Teaching. Mm-hmm. to love their husbands and their families. What was that? To be, sorry, I can't hear you. <laughs> Discreet. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so good. So why I want us to do this, just to spend two minutes, like I said, I know it's early. I know it's easy when we're talking through a list to just tune out, but also this is what we're doing at home when we're opening up the Bibles, right? We're, we're thinking through, we're categorizing, we're saying, what does this mean? And therefore, how should I live? So let's talk through all of these. We're going to talk through each one of these, um, starting with older women. So I know we have a lot of younger women in the room, myself included, if you ignore the gray hairs. And so if you're young, don't tune this out. This is who younger women are supposed to aspire to be. And it doesn't just happen. You don't just magically become a godly, reverent older woman. It takes work. Nancy DeMoss, Walgamuth, and Mary Cassian in that study that I held up last week, they said it like this. When you're young, the character defect of irreverence can be covered up with youthful energy and good looks and natural abilities. So thinking about, you know, if you think about someone that you know, perhaps, who's just really mean, often the world will show her grace. They'll say, oh, she's so cute. You know, she, she's got the good personality and the good looks, and they may show her a lot of grace. But when you come, become older, it says, those things fade away and the defects become more pronounced and more visible. Women who have cultivated the inner beauty of a reverent spirit become more beautiful with age, but irreverent women become increasingly ugly as their physical beauty fades. So basically saying, whatever kind of beauty you've cultivated is gonna show. Was it peaked at youth with your good looks or does it, do you become more beautiful with age as you grow in the likeness of Christ? So the first thing that Paul calls us to do as older women is to grow, is to be reverent and behavior. What does that mean? The KJV translates it as, as becometh holiness. So basically to become holy, it refers to your attitude and your conduct, what you do, what you don't do, what you wear. It's more than just uh, your behavior. It's, it's all of who you are, how you carry yourself, what you talk about. Do you live holy lives in all things? And in a sense, of course, all believers are called to be reverent. But notice this is what he calls first for older women. He doesn't say, take care of your bodies. He doesn't say, make sure you're praying. You got a lot of time. Make sure you take care of your grandchildren. He's saying, be reverent. And so then he gives us two subcategories. What does this look like? First, not to slander. What is slandering? Can anyone shout out a definition? What does it mean to slander? Yeah, gossip, talking badly about other people. 
And so uh, we can all do this in lots of ways, right? Maybe we talk poorly about our husbands if we're married, about our coworkers if we're working, about our, our parents if, we're, if we have them around. We complain about other people for a couple of reasons. One, we maybe want to tear them down so we feel better about ourselves. Or maybe we think we're actually better than them. And so in your personal reflection, uh, your personal reflection question for this section is, honestly, evaluate your speech. Do you build others up with your words or do you tear them down? You know, it's interesting that Paul calls this, that he tells older women to do this. There have been studies for a long time that have proven women on average speak more words than men. That's been known for a while. Not every man, not every woman. My husband speaks more than me, but on average. But there was a study that came out a couple of years ago that basically said the substance of what we talk about, men versus women, statistically is different. Men talk more concrete, generally, statistically. They talk about jobs, sports, family, stocks, games, whatever it is. And women, as women, we use a lot more pronouns. We are more relational how God made us. He made Eve as a helper. We are relational in nature. But uh, maybe even intuitively, you know this to be true. You walked in here today and you said, you'll never believe what happened to me. I was at my friend's house and dot, dot, dot. You haven't even started the story. Nothing has happened yet. But even in that introduction, there's four pronouns, right? You will never believe what happened to me. The other day, I was at my, friend, my friend's house. You know, we are relational in being, and that's a gift. That's a beautiful part of how God made us. But when sin creeps in, that can easily turn into slander when we are relationally tearing others down. So scripture is telling us to guard our words, to use them to lift up and not to tear down. Another reflection question could be, if everyone heard what you said about them, how would your relationships be? If they heard what you said behind their back, would, you, would your relationships be strengthened or torn down? Um, what we talk about is a good test of reverence in our lives. When we have a reverence for Christ, we have respect for those around us. So we should take an inventory of our speech. But secondly, not addicted to much wine. That's the next fill in the blank for your handout. Maybe... This is an easy application for you. You hear this and you think, I can be addicted to much wine. I know exactly what he's talking about. And we can, you know, end there. But maybe for you, that's not your personal problem. The idea that Paul is talking about is not older women can never enjoy wine, but he's talking about this idea of addiction or excess. Commentators say that this had to do with self-indulgence at the time. And so we can all evaluate Are there areas in my life where I am self-indulging? Maybe I am using whatever it is to numb my emotions. When I have a good day, I do this. When I have a bad day, I do this. When I'm feeling happy, sad, angry, anxious, I pick up Instagram. I comfort eat. I, whatever it is, even good things, um, they can become addictive behaviors. And so we're talking about this idea of self-indulgence. So we're not to be enslaved to anything but to Christ. And in our discussion time, we'll talk more about that. Next on the list, though, we are moving from older women to younger women. And Paul's going to say, instead of that, instead of slandering, instead of being addicted to much wine, older women are to teach. This word teach or train 
It means to show or to demonstrate. It's personal. It's not just this knowledge transfer. Let me just teach you something. It's personal. Let me show you. Let me demonstrate what this looks like. And he's going to give a longer list of this. So what are younger women supposed to learn? First up, love your husbands and your children. If you're single, don't tune this out. God's word, all of it is helpful for you. And um, statistically, most women in this room will marry at some point in their lives. But even if not, you all have friends that are married and they'll come to you and they will at some point likely complain about their husbands. How are you going to encourage them and be cheerleaders of what God has created? God has created marriage as a good gift. How can we be cheerleaders of the marriages around us? So regardless of your marital status, this is important because we are all called to be cheerleaders of the marriages around us. So what does this look like? In America, we have one word for love, right? We have love. But in other languages, there's lots. There's different words that mean different things. And even thinking through Spanish, right? We have te quiero, excuse my, my accent. Never learned how to roll the R's, but te quiero, I could say to any of you guys. Or I could say te amo to my husband. I could say I am romantically in love with you versus I love you guys, you know? Uh, I think in a couple of weeks ago in a sermon, Chris did this too with Greek where you could say I love ice cream or I love my kids in English and they're the same. But in Greek, there's different words that mean love. The word here, it means be affectionate towards your husband and your children. So loving your husband's and your children means to be affectionate towards them. It has this idea of enjoyment, of cherishing. Other translations say, be attached to your husbands or be fond of them. It's not just check off the list, you know, make sure you've cleaned the house, that you've cooked the meals, that you've submitted to him. It's enjoy him. And this is a really important command. Um, When I was in college, I had a discipler named Sarah and she was newly married when she started discipling me. And every time she talked about her husband, Jonathan, she glowed. It was, she lit up, her eyes lit up, her face was brightened. She loved him, she adored him. Now it's been 15 years. And every single time I have talked to her since then, it's been the same. It's been the same adoration. Not that their marriage has been perfect. She has let me into some of the fights and the struggles that they've had. But all in all, if I could categorize anything with their marriage, it would be adoration. And we need older women to teach us younger women how to do that, how to love our husbands well. You know, on our wedding day, you're in the dress, you have the flowers, you have your family around, you have the heart eyes. And most women don't think that they need help with this on their wedding day. They think we're different, we are in love, and no one's gonna, we're always gonna be this way. But it's not long before Little annoyances can become big sources of bitterness. He doesn't put his toothpaste cap on. He puts the toilet paper on the wrong way. He doesn't lead me well. He's harsh with me. Whatever, whatever it is, these things can remind us that I married a sinner and he married one too. And we can be surprised by that. And so um, we need older women to show us even when our husbands disappoint us, even when they are an inconvenience, what it looks like to cherish them. Our marriages are symbols of the gospel. And because they're symbols of the gospel, Satan wants nothing more than to tear them down. Again, that Bible study, Mary Cassian and Nancy DeMoss Walgamu said it like this. It strikes me that if marriage and family and children are symbols that point to and display the gospel, 
Is it any wonder that in our society, Satan attacks at that very point that we're to display the gospel, the story of Jesus in our marriages? Satan works hard to destroy marriage and the concept of marriage to devalue it and to destroy everything that's precious in God's sight. This isn't just like a minor off-the-cuff suggestion. This is really important because it influences how other people perceive the gospel. There's weight to this, and there's also a beauty to fulfilling our biblical roles in this way. So how do we do this? What if you're married or you will be married and you cannot imagine feeling affectionate towards your husband? It's been a long season of drought, conflict. You just can't imagine what this would look like two encouragements, both from scripture and from my own life. One is be praying for your husband. I um, personally, I just uploaded this in the church doc this morning or the church app. Um, This is a 30-day praying for your husband um, prayer guide. This is what I use, and it honestly has transformed my marriage, the way that I view my husband. What I do is every day it has 30 days, today's the 25th. So I would go to the 25th and I would pray that prayer prompt for my husband. If I miss a day, that's okay. I'd go to the 27th next, you know, but um, it helps me to pray for Ronald in ways that I wouldn't naturally think to do. But also the secret of prayer is this, that God, one, he hears our prayers. He does something with them. In this miraculous gift of grace, God uses our prayers to produce change. And so if you are dissatisfied in your marriage, be praying for your husband. But secondly, When we pray, God changes us. We are advocating, we are spending our time, our energy, affections, all of this going before the throne of God and interceding for our husbands. When we do that, our affections change. It's kind of like this mission trip that's coming up. If you've given money and you've prayed and you've fasted, you wanna know how it goes. You want it to go well because I'm invested. In the same way, when you are pouring yourself out for your husband in prayer, You become his cheerleader more and more because you want him to succeed. You're invested. But secondly, gratitude. We are to express gratitude in every season. That is a command from from the Lord. But what does this look like? Uh, An example from our own marriage. When we were married one year, my husband and I lived overseas a couple years. And um, on our first year anniversary, we were picking out where are we going to live overseas. We were going through the book of different countries and picking it out. On our second year anniversary, we were packing up our bags to go. And then we moved to this third world country where there was a lot of stress. It was difficult to say the least. Uh, We didn't know how to use the bathroom. I mean, there were squatty potties, we went bathrooms. We didn't know how to order food. We didn't know if we needed medical care, how to get it. Our bedroom wall in in our house, it was so moldy that it looked like someone had ordered a cheese pizza and just like rubbed it on the walls. It was just flowing with mold, and it was stressful. (laughs) And Ronald and I realized very quickly that if we were not on the same team, if we weren't Team Perez, we were going to drown. I needed to be thankful, and I learned how to be thankful for my husband in ways that I never had learned before, to be thankful for a husband who speaks the same language as me. I had never been thankful for that before, but now I was thankful for that. (laughs) To be thankful for a husband who brought an umbrella when it was torrentially pouring in this third world country, I had never thanked the Lord for that before, but I started to. And I learned it changed my affections as I was finding even little things. Thank you, God, for a husband who woke up today and who went to work to take care, to provide financially. You know, those are a couple things right there. Even if you had a really tense morning, you can start to practice gratitude in the small things and it will change, um, it will change your perspective. 
So in your handout, there is a uh, practicing gratitude exercise. I am thankful for. If you're not married, I want you to pick one person who's really difficult for you, especially difficult for you. Maybe a coworker, maybe a parent or a sister or a brother. Pick one person. If you're married, this is for your spouse. Whether you've been married for a second or for 50 years, to pick one thing or 10 that you're thankful for, write it down. Go tell that person that you're thankful for this about them. Uh, Again, older, reverent women don't magically happen. They are made in the small, day-to-day, unseen moments of life. So that is love husbands, love children. Again, um, this idea of being affectionate towards children. We live in America where children are now seen more as a burden than a blessing. They are an inconvenience to travel plans, to career advancement, to my personal happiness. And so it is very normal for us if we're not fighting the waves of culture to see kids as this inconvenience at best, a burden at worst. And so um, this is an important command for us today. I think if you remember last week I shared, as a kid, I never remember thinking I wanted to be a mom growing up. I'm sure I felt that at some point. I never remember thinking that and I surely didn't change my life path to accommodate that. And so I was one who was prey to the waves of culture too. We talked about Betty Friedan, who wrote a book about this, um, basically saying uh, kids are a burden and also the, house, the role of a housewife is demeaning. We're gonna talk about that in a little bit. But even if you don't have kids, this is important to start to cultivate now. And so many of you guys, I look even in this room, and I don't think you need help with this. You have loved our kids so well. They think you walk on water. You have been so affectionate. You have been big sisters and aunts and grandparents towards our kids. And I'm so thankful for others of you. Maybe in your heart, you know that you really dread kids' ministry. You really dread Sundays when the kids are running around after church. And you can start by checking that heart and saying, how can I be affectionate towards the kids around me, whether I have them or whether I go to church on Sunday and they're around, but starting to learn, how do I love them? Again, we need older women to teach us this. Uh, but notice here, even with this, when this, within this command, that husbands come first. It's easy when we have little kids to make it all about the kids. They are our world. They take up all the limited re- energy and resources that we have, and the husbands kind of get pushed to the side. But Paul is saying, love husbands and children. Our husbands were there first. They will be there, Lord willing, after. And so there's even little ways that we can start to cultivate and show our children Daddy comes first, and I love this man. Whether it's he comes home from work, what we do, the day stops when daddy comes home, get the kids really excited, and daddy's home. We stop, little things like that to say, I love this man. He's worth stopping our toys. He's worth stopping the TV, whatever it is to say, he's our priority in the day. Whatever little things, but to say he comes first. Okay, let's keep going on in the list. The next one is older women are to teach younger women to be self-controlled. Okay, so in your mind, I would love it if you can think of one person that you admire in this area, one person who you think is really self-controlled, and what attitudes, what characteristics describe them. You can even in your handout on the side write that. Maybe it's discipline, maybe it's drive, 
Maybe it's something else. But while, while you're thinking about that, listen to this proverb. It's 20, Proverbs uh, 25, 28. It says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So you have this idea of self-control in your head, and then you also have this image of a city with no walls. And again, that imagery might seem a little bit foreign because we don't have walls in our city, but it's talking about a time when you needed walls to protect you from the enemy. If you didn't have walls, you were vulnerable to the attack of others. And so not having self-control leaves us vulnerable to the attack of of the enemy. Self-control also affects every area of our lives. I have three fill in the blanks here, but as an example, it affects our thoughts, our actions, and our words. It affects our thoughts. Like we talked about last week, are you spiraling through anxious thinking, constantly meditating on what's not true, constantly thinking, I wonder what this person is thinking about me, I wonder what that person's, are you, are you dwelling in this untrue reality? Or are you self-controlled with your thoughts, meditating on the word of God? It affects your actions. How are you using your time? Practical things. Are you getting enough sleep? What do you watch on TV? What do you look at online? Do you get exercise? It affects all of our lives. And finally, our words. This is not obviously exhaustive, but uh, what we say. Are you growing in discernment with your words? Even as we were talking about earlier with slander, it's so easy to talk badly about someone behind their back and not to their face. Or maybe for you, it's texting or an online you know, name that you can be really bold with texts, but in person, you would never say that face-to-face. Are you growing in discernment or do you just say whatever comes to your mind? Okay, so older women are to teach younger women about self-control. Next on the list is pure. So... This word, pure, purity, um, it might stir up all kinds of feelings for you. A lot of us grew up in a purity culture. And when we think of purity, we think of not having sex before marriage. And you think, I've already done that. I could never be pure. Or maybe you think about some kind of abuse that happened and you think, I feel defiled. I feel dirty. I could never be pure. That's not what scripture is calling us to. Instead, even to level the playing field, the Greek word for pure here is hagnos, which means holy. It's talking about faultless, immaculate, clean, uncontaminated. So even if you were the good girl growing up, I guarantee you were not immaculate. You are not perfect. This word also means literally to awaken awe or to excite reverence. So how then can we be pure? In Old Testament times, they think back to the book of Leviticus, they had priests who would slaughter the blood. They would slaughter innocent animals and sprinkle the blood of the animal all over the people on the temple. And this blood, the blood of the animal is what made the people clean, right? Now, because of Jesus, we are made clean in the same way because of the blood of Jesus. Talks about it in Hebrews. Hebrews 9, 13 to 14, Hebrews 10, 19 through 23, all throughout the New Testament. But basically here's one of those. It says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, you think of an animal offering himself, but Jesus voluntarily offered himself, knowingly offered himself. 
and his blood, how much more will his blood purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So Jesus became this ultimate sacrifice once and for all, forever made clean because of his blood. And we, when we confess our sins to him, he forgives us of all unrighteousness. He makes us clean. This is called our positional purity. That's the theological name for it. So we are positionally pure before the Lord, no matter what we do, no matter what we don't do. When we become a Christian and confessing our sins and he saves us, we are positionally pure before the Lord. And now, because we have been saved, we are to live pure lives. Again, not to earn God's love, but in response to it. First John 3, one through three says it like this. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. And then it says at the end of that, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So it's saying, God has made us pure. Therefore, we are to live pure and holy lives, right? What does this look like? In your handout, you have two blanks. The first one we're gonna do is in sexuality or sexually. Throughout the New Testament, Paul often gives these put off and put on lists. He says, you know, almost as if you're wearing clothes, take off this and put on this. And he gives a list of attributes, of characteristics, of actions. Ed Welsh, I believe it was Ed Welsh, once said that these all could be categorized generally in two categories. First is sexually, and secondly is with anger, which is your second blank. And you think about it, we know that this is true, whether our thoughts, our minds, our bodies, are we pure sexually, what we think about, what we lust over, who we lust over, what we do with our bodies, but also with our anger, whether angry thoughts, angry motivations, thinking violence, those are all acts of anger. And so we are to be called, we are called to pursue purity sexually in terms of anger, um, as well as other areas as well. But um, if you are still feeling like, man, I wish I felt pure, I just don't. And I know that Jesus made me clean. I just don't feel it. Another good verse to look up later, Titus 3, 3 through 5 would be a good one to study. Scripture says this, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And because of Jesus, he has made us pure. We will see God because of Jesus. He washes us, he makes us clean. And we are also to grow in purity in this way. So with that said, let's move on to the next one, which is working at home. So show of hands, how many people work, get paid for their work? How many people you either work at home, you work in the workplace, whatever it is. Okay. Has anyone ever heard this said that this verse used to say that you should not do that? I hope not, but has anyone? It's okay. Okay. Okay, good. Just knowing where we're coming from. So within scripture, Paul is not saying that women cannot work, that you can't get money for your work. That's not what he's saying. Instead, scripture is full of lots of women who worked. We have examples like Ruth who gleaned wheat. We have midwives listed in scripture. We even have fashion designers. Acts 9, 39 talks about that. Um, we have those who sold, women who sold purple goods. There are plenty of women who made money for their, for their professional endeavors in scripture. And if you're in the marketplace, this is a great opportunity for you to be a light wherever you are. You are to be the light of Jesus in a dark world. And this is a great opportunity for you. But whether or not you work outside the home or inside the home, whether you get paid for your work, we are all called as women to work at home. So what does this mean? In Greek, 
the phrase working at home, it's this compound word and it means keep or guard the home. So as women, we are to guard our homes, we're to keep our homes. It implies this efficiently managing our households. We're to keep or guard them. Culturally, this is not valued anymore. Thinking back to that Betty Friedan, her book that said housewives are, it's, an, it's um, demeaning to women to call them housewives, that that should not be a role of women. But scripture, I've listed a couple of the references here. Scripture often links women with this particular calling, that we are to manage our homes. And it's not a lesser than thing. It doesn't mean that men can never cook. It doesn't mean that women have to be the ones to do you know, all of the household chores, but it does imply a special role for women. And again, it's not lesser than because Jesus himself went to prepare a home for us. We are being like Jesus when we prepare and make our homes a safe place for others. So what does this look like? Um, Scripture doesn't give a checklist. It doesn't say, here's how you have to clean your home. Here's how you have to cook your meals. But that's what discipleship is for. And that's what our discussion time is gonna go through. We're gonna share what this looks like for for you. Older women, it's time to step up and share some practical tips as well. Younger women as well. But we're all called to hospitality. I'm gonna give a couple of ideas. But this is, again, it's not scripture. This is just things that I have been taught from other people as well. But for example, um, when I was overseas, we went through a lot of difficulties. We had miscarriages, we had a robbery, we had flooding. And when it would flood, the, you know, squatty potties, remember? So the water would come and it would just bring up all of that (laughs) into the streets. And, you know, they would turn off the power for, safety reasons. And so you were in a hot like this. It was very humid, very hot. It's hot. It was humid. It was dirty. Um, And sometimes we'd have to evacuate our home. And so we were walking through the sludge and uh, providentially, we had a family living about an hour away one year that was from our church in North Carolina. They were living the year in Jakarta or outside Jakarta and it was flooding and we went to their house and it was one of the most amazing feelings that I've ever felt. Not only did they offer me, you know, a clean shower, warm meal, that would have been enough. But when I went to bed, there were flowers by my bedside table. There was a goodie bag that had toothbrush, toothpaste, washcloth. I mean, she had thought of everything. And I thought, I asked her later, what made you think to do this? When did you start doing this? And she said, you know, someone taught me when I was younger that if you have a guest room, you should sleep in it. You should pretend like you're the guest and see what you would need. Do you need a phone charger? Put it there for them. Do you like flowers? Put it there. You know, just put yourself in the mind of a, of a guest staying in your home. Uh, that might be a practical thing. Or maybe when you go to someone else's home for dinner, you can just see what made you feel comfortable and start doing that. Be a good student of what other people are doing and start implementing that. Some of you guys are really great at cooking. Ask to learn some recipes from, from someone else. If, if, they're, if you're not good at cooking, ask, find someone that is. Some of you are great at baking or decorating or whatever it is, but creating a warm and welcoming place where if you're married, your husband wants to come home. It's a safe place where you invite others, friends into your home and it's a safe place. So whether or not we work outside the home, we're all called to work inside the home. This is what, this is interesting. In 1 Peter 5, Paul is talking about widows and he's talking about qualifications for widows, like who should be paid by the church. And he says this, and having a reputation for good works, talking about widows and brought up children 
And having shown hospitality and washed the feet of the saints and cared for the afflicted and devoted herself to every good work. Those are all things that nowadays are not valued by society anymore. Loving children, showing hospitality, taking care of the needs of others. But this is what scripture calls good work. This is good God-honoring work before the Lord. And we're all, the problem is we're all limited. We only have 24 hours. And it's very easy to just do all the things out there, all the WhatsApp groups and all the good things that we neglect what God has also called us to at home. So big picture, can women work outside the home? Yes. Can women stay home? Yes. But should all women work at home? Yes. We're not to be busybodies or idols in that way, but work to work at home, to make it a safe place to guard our homes. So let's keep going on the list. The last one on your list is kind. And I have a bunch of verses listed there. But here's my question for you. Are you kind? Is that something that others would use to describe you? Is that a word that people would use to describe you? If someone gossips about you at work, if your husband forgets to take out the trash, is your first gut impulse, let me be kind to that person. Probably not, naturally, I'm not either, but listen to how God treats us. Romans 2, 4 says that the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. God doesn't withdraw from us in our sin. He pursues us in kindness. Later in the book of Titus, it says the same thing. And when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So God pursues us. He is kind towards us when we don't deserve it. Therefore, we are called to be kind to others when they don't deserve it either. This word kind is often linked to speech as well. We've talked about slandering and talking bad about people as well. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good. That's the same Greek word, good or kind are, are often correlated, but only what's good for building up that may give grace to those who hear. It says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. So we're kind to others because God was kind to us. We forgive others because God forgave us. This word is linked with qualities like affection, friendliness, gentleness. Would that describe you? Is that how other people would describe you? Um, We all can grow in this area in kindness. So... If you are paying attention on the verses above, the last one actually on the list is be submissive to their own husbands. But we are not going to talk about that today because we're talking about that next time. We're talking about submission and complementarianism next week. And so we'll go in depth into that. But just as a little bit of a teaser and a reminder, how we love our husbands and our children influences how others perceive the gospel. It's really important. It matters. But big picture— From Titus 2, we see that this really matters at the end of of verse 5 because the word of God, we do not want it to be reviled. That means that we can live in a way that God's word is reviled. How we communicate who God is by how we live. Other, Other places in Titus, it says, so that in every way we can make the teaching of God attractive. We want, it's talking about serving servants obeying their masters, that they are to do that so that they can adorn or show the attractiveness of the word of God. 
So we're doing this now. We're, we're wanting to grow as biblical women, not for ourselves to puff ourselves up and to become this perfect woman. We want to do it for the glory of God, like we talked about last week. We want to do it because we want the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And one way that we can do that is by living pure and holy lives, by being an example, by being different than the world around us, and by modeling even with our actions, with our words, with our speech, with all of that, that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. He is better. He is worth it. So with that being said, we are going to break up now and do discipleship in person. On the back of your handout, you have a bunch of discussion questions. We're going to break up and talk about them. But like I said, even if you don't have time to do this, to talk about each one now, which you probably won't, go home and pray through this. This is each category, each uh, description or verb or adjective has a question. And go before the Lord and ask with your Bible open to Titus 2, God, how could I grow in reverence or in self-control or working at home? All of those different things. Ask the Lord and see what he would, he would teach you.